Thanks for tuning into Status Hour. I'm Noah Black, and I'm excited to speak with Maral Shamshiri. She's a PhD candidate in international history at the London School of Economics and holds a master's in philosophy in modern Middle East studies with distinction from St. Anthony's College at Oxford. She previously worked at a trade association in Brussels and is a former editor of the Oxford Middle East Review. Her current research looks at Cold War relations and anti-colonial revolutionary movements in Iran, Oman, and neighboring Arab states of the Persian Gulf during the late 1960s and early 1970s. So thanks for joining us today, Maral. I know this was a big hassle, and I know I've said that multiple times, but thank you again. Uh, thank you. No, no hassle, honestly. Uh, thank you for having me. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing and a little bit about the Jafar Rebellion? Because I know Oman is particularly understudied. Yeah, so um, I guess, as you said, um, my research is focused on the Iranian involvement in the Dofar Revolution um, and the kind of global Cold War dynamics. Um, so the project grew out of uh, my MPhil research, uh, which you mentioned. So the Dofa Rebellion, um, it's phrased diff by different people, but uh, scholars that argue it was a revolution. So for 11 years, the revolution took place between 1965 and 1976. Uh, and Dofa is the southern province of Oman, uh, which borders Yemen today. The Dofa Revolution was a conflict between uh, the popular front for the liberation of Oman, although they had several name changes, and Sultan Qaboos's, I guess, Anglo-Sultanic armed forces, uh, which also included the military backing of the Shah of Iran. Essentially, it was a liberation movement for Dofar in protest to the British imperial role in Oman. So, yeah, I mean, what brought me to this topic of study? I guess when I started doing my MPhil, about a year and a half ago, looking at this topic, I was really just interested in working on both Iranian and Arab political relations and historical connections. So, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, you know, this, this idea of Arab-Iranian hostilities is entrenched in cultural or historical popular ideas. So I kind of wanted to find um, historical moments, whether diplomatic, whether popular, whether cultural, of you know collaboration and i think there are many examples of the sort of arab iranian cooperation uh particularly on a grassroots and revolutionary level which is what i'm kind of exploring now and i suppose the dofa revolution i just find it really a really interesting and important case study because you had sort of two levels of dynamics you had the diplomatic relations between the shah of iran and the sultan of oman and their kind of allied forces um to kind of quell this marxist revolution in Dofar, but at the same time, you had these revolutionary networks and relations that were formed between the Dofari guerrillas um, and guerrilla organizations in Iran, and not to mention a number of others. Um, you know, there were people from Cuba, there were revolutionaries from Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq, there were all of these connections. So it really, you know, it's a really interesting site for all of these dynamics. And I, I think you're right, like Oman is. It's just such an understudied area on its own, geographically, let alone, you know, in a kind of regional and more internationalist kind of sense. But, you know, there is such a rich history there. And for me, it's really important because there was a national liberation movement going on, but actually it was more than just a national movement. There was all this internationalism, there was all this global support. So, yeah, essentially I would say that the Dofar revolution and Dofar as a site of happening 
was a really important catalyst and center point where a lot of action was taking place, where you had these ideas against communism and revolution on the one hand, you know, by the British, the Omanis, the Iranians. But then you had at the same time, you know, these these kind of grassroots ideas about revolution, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, um, which were, you know, conceived and actually enacted. So they had this revolution. And so the Iranian dimension for me becomes really fascinating because the Shah is sending his troops to support the Sultan's forces from above. And then you have these Iranian guerrilla organizations who, you know, are risking their lives to go and and support the guerrillas, to support the revolutionaries on the front lines. And so they kind of there's a really interesting connection between their domestic struggles against the Shah's repression. They kind of use Dofa as a really important platform to, I suppose, enact their kind of international, uh, sorry, their international visions for revolution and like a different, a different kind of world order, which was really facilitated in that kind of, you know, global 68 moment, the sort of long 60s. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And it sounds like, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we were actually talking about it in person, but it, there are so many actors involved in these particular events on the ground, um, as well as diplomatically. Could you speak a little bit about exactly who is involved um, and maybe about the dimension of Iranian opposition organizations and their relationship specifically to the Dofaris on the ground? So you had, yeah, so you had two sides in this conflict. You had the kind of Sultan's armed forces, and the SAF actually was led by British military personnel. Um, so the British were very much kind of really behind the Sultan. So on that, you know, on that front, that kind of collaboration was going on for a very long time. The Shah joins the military front in 1972. So in 1971, Tsongkhabu's is invited to Iran. Uh, there's this grand Persepolis celebration. And over there, he asks the Shah, he says, I need your support. Um, so the Shah is, you know, drawn into this war. And he had his own kind of sort of regional ambitions, the hegemony and kind of aspirations for, yeah, what Ir- Iran's military presence could be in the region. So he finds it, he sees it as a really important opportunity to train his soldiers who actually hadn't been know in a in a kind of conflict prior to that so you have the british the omanis and the iranians on the one hand for a brief period jordanians get involved on the one hand i think for the british especially the the dofa war in their perspective uh, was a secret war and they were really trying to underplay their role they were trying to underplay the role of the sas so they really kind of didn't push on the Jordanians, but essentially after quite some time, King Hussein um, eventually comes in. But the Jordanians don't stay for very long. For about, I think, six months, they're there. And it's it's really interesting how it was all kind of coordinated because the British and the Omanis didn't want there to be too much Iranian presence in Dofa. So the Shah's role, which in the kind of mid early mid-70s becomes more and more obvious, that, you know, while it, prior to that it had been a secret war, they tried to kind of bring in Jordan to kind of dilute that. King Hussein essentially accused the British of dragging their feet. They thought that there was no real reason for that. So on that front, the Jordanians end up pulling out. 
so that was that was kind of one side of it. On the other hand, with the Dofari revolutionaries, like I said, you had Iranian guerrilla organizations who came across. They were very small in number, probably less than 20 of them were actually there. But essentially they came and they set up base in uh, in Aden, in PDRY. So Yemen today, from 67 to 1990, uh, was actually the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen which was the first and only Marxist state to exist in the Middle East. So the Iranian guerrilla organizations, uh, the Fadai guerrillas and the Mujahideen, they were able to set up offices there. And for them, that was, you know, an external front to taking part in DOFA, establishing their networks kind of internationally. And I suppose if you're asking who the actors were involved in DOFA, I think to kind of shift our focus from from seeing this only as a kind of military intervention or affair we can actually view it in in a different way several international actors going beyond the state were involved so those guerrilla organizations i mentioned but also there was a really big international solidarity campaign in the 60s in the 70s and so i would say there was massive involvement you had campaigns and solidarity from the us latin america europe specifically germany and the uk you know, from Iran, various Arab states, Bahrain, Saudi. And and so for them, I suppose, in that kind of leftist internationalism, Dofar became a really important issue. So really interested in actually trying to map out all of these relations because, you know, they were all sort of involved in this in this history. Sorry, what was the second question? Did you say the, the connection between the Iranian opposition and the Dofaris? Yeah, I guess because there's kind of two sides to the cooperation between Iranians and Arabs in in this conflict. There's the monarchs and the people's movements. So just to speak more on like the cooperation, I guess you mentioned the international solidarity aspects of it, but I don't know if you had anything else to say on it. Yeah, I mean, so that's, I think, the most interesting part of the story that, you know, there were these individuals and small groups of people who left Iran. They were, you know, struggling with, you know, this real repression in the kind of late 60s and the 70s in Iran. So the 70s actually, yeah, in Iran is considered a kind of guerrilla era. It's like a decade of guerrilla warfare. So you have these organizations, two of which I mentioned, who are launching, you know, these attacks on the Shah um, and his kind of really repressive control. So it, it, it's interesting because domestically, they really kind of have this desire for a different kind of system. They are trying to overthrow the Shah. They, you know, they believe actually in this idea of radicalism, of taking up arms. And and that was huge. If you think at the time, you know, this is the late 60s and early 70s. We have all of these kind of currents of, I don't know, Marxist ideas, revolutionary ideas. So they're domestically, they're really caught up in that. And, and they think that this, you know, they, they can actually conceive of and conceptualize a different kind of order. So you have that going on domestically. And then once the Shah in 1970, 1972 comes actually, you know, actually takes his troops to Oman, that gives the Iranian organizations a real reason to counter that. So they take up this this issue of Dofa. It becomes, you know, it becomes their issue because Shah is very much there. 
So in that regard, there is a real sort of connection between their kind of domestic ideas for revolution and how actually by going to Dofa, these groups really can embody and enact what it means to have a revolution. And they really believe in this idea of a revolution. Um, so it becomes a real platform for that, which is really interesting. And like you say, you know, this idea of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism. So for the Dofaris, it's very much an anti-colonial struggle. Um, the British have been, you know, had been in Oman from the very late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, you have uprisings actually you know, against British oil drilling. So there is a real history there of kind of British interference. For the Iranians, however, they don't have that kind of direct sort of anti-colonial struggle. It's more kind of anti-imperialism, getting rid of the Shah and his kind of modernization plans and his kind of efforts to change the country um, and actually heavily, heavily repress anyone that opposed him, particularly the kind of hard left. You know, you it's really interesting because Dofar becomes this platform for these ideas, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, and ultimately a form of sort of third world global South solidarity. And ultimately, you know, if you think about it, why did these people, these Iranian guerrilla organizations go to Dofar? How moved do you have to be emotionally, politically? You know, I think there was just such a shared experience of injustice that allowed them to form this genuine belief that they could, you know, they could be a part of different worlds. And so I think, yeah, the connection there for me is really that by going to Dofa, they are engaging in this kind of global historical trajectory of revolution, uh, which they really, really believe in. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people, myself included, have a tendency to look at the Cold War, or as it's called frequently, like the Arab Cold War, as this big chess match between the U.S. and the USSR. And a lot of times it's portrayed as if Oman or Iran or different guerrilla organizations are just these pawns in a larger game. But it sounds like there's a big grassroots and really, you know, from the bottom push and influence in this particular set of events. So I guess, how are we to understand this in the larger context of the Cold War in the Middle East without, you know, without giving Britain too much credit for like pulling in people and speaking more about their own agency? Mm. Yeah, that's. I think that's really interesting. Um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do now with the PhD project is to kind of expand it and look at it from this kind of Cold War perspective. But what does that really mean? I think, I think there are different ways of, you know, like thinking about the Cold War. So two ways, for example, is I would say it's firstly, you know, what has been studied at length, which is what you're talking about, is this kind of idea of the Cold War as this bipolar conflict between the US and the USSR. And, you know, the rest of the world is the playing field and the pawns that are kind of, you know, going along with these global currents coming from, you know, these two poles. So, you know, in terms of the Dofar experience, I think it's, it is interesting to analyze how the, the revolutionaries may have aligned with the Soviets, for example. Um, it is interesting to see how, you know, the British and the Sultan were kind of 
connected to the US in some some way or form. Interestingly, the US didn't actually intervene, although they were kind of very involved and aware of what was going on. It's also interesting, actually, that, uh, well, it's not interesting, it's awful, um, that Dofa has been dubbed Britain's Vietnam. So I think when you think of it like that, yes, if we, if we want to think of the Cold War in terms of bipolarity, we can kind of read that into this Dofa sort of revolution. But on the flip side, I think it's really important to argue that, you know, these these third world or global South actors, they, they weren't just passive, you know, that didn't really have their own agency. Um, they weren't just, you know, pawns to these global, the global kind of dynamic. Actually, we should think of them as being agents of their own change. You know, we have to give them the agency um, and that their histories should really be considered from their own perspectives. So, yes, actually, there was Sino-Soviet influence in Dofa, but it's, it's it's almost a structure agency discussion where actually Dofa wasn't the liberation movement in Dofa may well have taken place, you know, irrespective of that. Um, so decolonization becomes really important here, um, since you know we can yeah we can argue that actually the Dofa liberation movement and and that kind of revolution was anti-colonial in nature and actually seemingly you know, separate to the Cold War. And the historian Matthew Connolly, he said that when we kind of analyze international history, we need to take off the Cold War lens. So, you know, sometimes the Cold War lens is really important, but actually we need to take it off of the post-colonial history in tandem with that Cold War history. And I think in addition to that, I think there is this tendency, especially in the historiography, to focus on the Cold War as this bipolar conflict. But increasingly today, we have this body of literature which focuses on the global Cold War. And if we think about what that really means, it for me, it's, it's shifting away from a bipolar reading of the Cold War. So for me, I, I'm really interested in, yeah, ideological ideas that came from, emanated from the Cold War. Well, how are they fought out in different parts of the world? How are they experienced in the Middle East? It wasn't happening in the Middle East because the you know the US and the USSR had kind of like thrown it upon them. I think especially in Dubai, it you know, it was these global currents were happening. But actually if we want to conceive of the Cold War as this sort of really global occurrence, Cold War research, it really needs multiple poles of occurrence. So yeah, not to bore you bore you with the Cold War historiography, but for a long time access in the former Soviet bloc was really difficult. So Cold War history to begin with was essentially an extension of American foreign relations. There was a focus on US archives and European archives. Um, then you had the kind of former uh, Soviet archives opening up, which allowed us to see the quote unquote the other side of the conflict. But now increasingly we have this third wave of Cold War scholarship where the emphasis is really on looking at kind of global archives, looking at sources from, you know, from the root themselves to understand, uh, I guess, how the Cold War was experienced, you know, in these parts of the world. So for me, that means, you know, looking specifically at the, the, the perspective of Iran and Oman. Um, and that's, that's considering the state perspective, but more so, it's actually also including the non-state actors, right? So as you say, 
the Cold War was, yeah, in this case, experienced on, on, on the grassroots level, on those front lines, in, you know, by these guerrilla organizations. We know that that was the experience, for example, in Latin America, in Algeria, actually in a lot of um, sort of global South third world countries. So in this case, I'm kind of trying to bring that to the Persian Gulf and see how it took place. Um, and so a transnational approach becomes really important because it looks at the state, but it actually like decentralizes it from being the only unit of analysis, uh, which means that you know non-state actors such as the guerrilla organizations, um, people, popular movements, international kind of solidarity groups, they were so sort of central to this Cold War history. And, and so to kind of return to that structure agency thing, it's kind of thinking about how the Cold War shaped these actors in the Middle East, but actually also how they shaped the global Cold War, right? A couple times in your answer there, and also in earlier conversations, um, there's been this connection between the process of decolonization and the global Cold War or interaction between different and opposing ideologies. Um, so specifically in the Dofar experience, how does this fit into the process of decolonization in the region as a whole and more specifically with Oman? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to do here is kind of marry international history with Middle East studies approaches and epistemology, if you like. And I suppose in history, we have an emphasis on Cold War history and kind of use having that Cold War lens on, um, whereas a Middle East studies approach would be kind of less sympathetic to that and actually would, you know, just want to see what was going on from a kind of very local regional perspective. So I think as regards the DOFA, there really there really is an important and complex relationship between decolonization and the Cold War. And I think, yeah, that concern that the Cold War lens might detract from or overshadow the decolonization that was taking place is is very legitimate. And I would say that, you know, that and many scholars, you know, have argued that there is a relationship between both of these currents because, you know, neither was taking place in a vacuum. So I think for the Dofar experience, the Dofar revolution, it makes sense to view this particular moment and episode of history from both frames. I think if we think about the forming of anti-colonial movements in the global south, the new states that were emerging, um, it's really difficult to consider their emergence independently of Cold War ideologies and conflict. Um, and I think in the 50s, 60s in particular, you have new nation states that are emerging which again, they kind of emerge in this environment of decolonization, but that kind of ran parallel to, you know, exceeded the Cold War. So I think it's really tricky because you have to be very careful to ensure that those movements, those visions in the third world, such as Endofa, you know, for, for liberation, an anti-colonial new world, that those kind of currents are given their significance and weight and that this kind of Cold War approach of thinking about things doesn't overshadow that. But at the same time, I think, you know, there is this real connection between the kind of third worldism that was happening at that time, the kind of tricontinental moment, the kind of global south that emerges, how that really was like the Cold War dynamic. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, as Connolly, it's kind of, you know, taking off the Cold War lens, putting it back on, kind of understanding the intersections of how these two kind of 
forces and currents are kind of interacting with each other. You kind of spoke briefly about the resonances or maybe aftershocks isn't exactly the right word, but the legacies of the movements and ideologies and events that took place in the Dofar Revolution that they kind of continue today. So how do we how do we see that? Does it play out in um, Omani foreign policy or its relationship with Iran or the UK? Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got it spot on. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, you know, in 1976, the revolution essentially is over. The Sultan declares that um, they have won. And so in that regard, you, I mean, still in so far today, there is there is still sentiment for kind of autonomous, not autonomous so far, but but to an extent, you know, as was the case in many places across the world, that kind of long 60s, kind of the global moment um, and those ideas about revolution are shattered. So I do think there is still a legacy in that regard, which I'm, I think I have to think about more and, and, and see. But I, I don't think that that completely died out. But there is, yeah, there's a huge legacy from the Iranian involvement so far and specifically the Shah's military involvement. So... It's being considered, you know, by most, by many, as actually the Shah's military intervention has been regarded by many as helping the Sultan quell the revolution. So without that Iranian support, it may have taken longer. So in that sense, the Iranian involvement was really invaluable. And it's really interesting because Iran and Oman have since shared really diplomatic relations. But specifically, the relationship has actually continued after the 1979 Iranian revolution. So, you know, you could expect the Shah and the Sultan to, to kind of have really strong relations and ties following 76. But then, yeah, once you have the Islamic Republic of Iran emerge after 1979, even still, you know, we have, we see um, really, really strong diplomatic relations. So on the one hand, I think that's down to Oman's Kind of neutral foreign policy in the region it's a small country and that's kind of consistently worked in its favor but very yeah i guess like clear examples of you know this this real like strong iranian omani relation today can be seen in, in various moments in 2011 2012 the omanis were facilitating secret meetings in muscat for the iranians and americans to engage in dialogue uh, ahead of nuclear talks so you know that they served that channel and you know helped resolve differences which eventually led to the historical phone call between um, Obama and Rouhani so I think in addition to that Oman has often mediated the release of Iranian dual nationals who have been detained in Iran um, there was a case with these American hikers in 2009 so actually it's interesting because, yeah, that legacy has kind of continued to this day, which many kind of historians and commentators will tribute specifically to that intervention that the Shah made in 72. So coming away from this, and I guess maybe we've kind of focused in close on the movements on the ground and also come away to look at the big picture but what are kind of the main, I don't know if you have main takeaways from the study thus far, but yeah, are there any d dynamics that still remain um, consistent inside of Oman, outside of Oman? You know, how do we understand this today? Does it 
um, other than the relationship between Oman and Iran? What's the larger significance of the Dofari revolution? That's a, that's a huge question. Um, I think, I think the main takeaways from this study that I've had so far, I would, maybe this isn't what we're going for, but I'd answer this methodologically. So even though I'm at a very early stage of this research, I think it's really showed me the potential of conducting, you know, multi-archival, multipolar research, as I mentioned earlier. And that like importance of gaining multiple perspectives, not just of states, but of you know actors beyond the state. So in my case, it's the guerrilla organizations, it's people, it's international kind of movements, all of which fall into this, which is this approach of ultimately transnational history. Um, and I think, you know, for a long time, history has been the history of states and actually you know, new, refreshing approaches that are considering, you know, not only the state, but people, individuals, organizations, movements, protests, all of this, you know, helps form such a, uh, you know, more complex reading of respective histories. I think by, you know, the study of DOFA and the kind of Iranian involvement in that, there are so many I think there are so many lessons to kind of learn from. And, and actually, we see similar things today in terms of, you know, how we make history, how we are all kind of involved in this history making. And I think as someone that's actually, you know, quite new to the study of history, prior to this, I did Middle East studies and prior to that politics. There's just so much for thinking about how that kind of history can inform our existence today. Um, and in this case, you know, looking at these histories of transnational internationalism which is so relevant to today as well I feel so I don't know if that answers your question but that's that's my take no that's fantastic thank you so much oh thank you yeah no thank you thanks for joining us you've been listening to status audio magazine the Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at Paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.